A massive black box is put right in the middle of the big dark space that I'm in. I walk past some screens with beautiful artwork and explanations on how black holes are created. Then I turn the corner and I step into the black box. I'm a little disoriented since all I see around me is me, another me, another me, and a thousand more me's. The room is covered in mirrors, and when the audiovisual spectacle of colorful stars and moving Milky Way starts, it feels like I'm floating among them. And then, I too get sucked into the black hole. But is it art? The whole prelude before you go into the kind of finale of the room was really exciting, and um, even the light show itself within the room, once you kind of you know, start taking your photos and actually like look at the kind of story behind it. it was a whole like narrative from start to finish and then the finishing kind of scene was really overwhelming and like really exciting to look at so it was yeah it was amazing it's great to um be able to engage with things like gravity or something that you might necessarily i think most people wouldn't necessarily think of it as art but like when you see it presented like that it's definitely a there's definitely a good argument to say that it is i think it was like the, the most impressive the most movement the most things happened and with the mirrors it was very like uh, yeah overwhelming i think just the feeling that it's it's art yeah like um, the four, four uh, screens right here it's art itself of course but it's also like kind of more a presentation of art in a different way because you see it on screen and when you see something on screen it's always like a different way so that's I, I mean it's art as well but it's just a different way of art and it's not like the other ones a full room but only screens Welcome to the fourth episode of But Is It Art? A podcast by Next Museum in Amsterdam, the home of new media art at the intersection of art, science, sound, and tech. In this first season, we're exploring the artworks from our inaugural exhibition, Shifting Proximities, trying to answer the never-ending question, but is it art? This episode, we focus on Distortions in Spacetime by Marshmallow Laser Feast. So Marshmallow Laser Feast, um, we started the company about 10 years ago. This is Barney Steele, one of the founders and directors of Marshmallow Laser Feast. And um, it was always set up around this combination of creativity and, and technology. And often our work is also rooted in science, um, although we explore quite a broad, broad spectrum of, of themes. Marshmallow Laser Feast, or MLF for short, started off with a lot of commercial work but they're now focusing on their artworks and following their interests. If you've listened to the last episode, those passions are going to sound quite familiar. I think one of them is the sort of myth of separation, the idea that you're a separate individual. You could say that the nature of perception puts you within your body looking out. It's not a strange thing to think of yourself as something separate from you know, what's inside the skin versus what's outside. And in a sense, you are separate individuals as well. So it's not like it's not like it's a full statement, but what maybe you don't see is hiding a world of interconnectivity. The idea that you are connected to trees, to water, to the flow of nutrients, to all the life cycles on the planet, that you're connected to the deaths of supernova stars that created the elements needed in order for you to exist in the first place. You know, there's these 
wonderful sort of scientific narratives that you can explore that basically reveal connections um, that, are, that exist beyond the limits of our senses. It might not seem obvious at first glance, but distortions in space-time has a very similar message as Habitat before it, and E-Continuum, which will be talked about in the next episode. All three artworks are rooted in the idea that we can learn from nature and should achieve to respect it and become part of it again, instead of seeing us as separate from it. Before this artwork, MLF also made Tree Hugger, a VR experience that revealed what goes on inside trees. But for this artwork, they turned to another fascination of theirs, space. I love Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, he's, he's just he's a, he's, he's a dreamy human. If you don't know Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's an American astrophysicist and planetary scientist who made TV programs and wrote pretty accessible books on space. And he just generally seems like a great guy, which I think is why he's so popular. And I love his way of talking about um, deep space. It's so compelling, but there's certain narratives I've picked up, you know, Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson and many others um, sort of talk about this idea that we come from stardust, that the um, ingredients um, that make a human, they weren't there in the Big Bang at the dawn of time. There was sort of hydrogen and helium and some of the lighter elements. And it took the, the sort of swirling of dust clouds and building of giant stars to create these sort of super, super massive stars that when they started to run out of um, fuel, they can they compress. And, and so their gravity then um, generates more heat that fuses the next element. So these huge stars basically kind of fuse the periodic table um, over over vast periods of time. But then they, they get to a certain point where they start to fuse iron and, um, and iron doesn't give out any energy when it fuses. So that's the moment of collapse. And it's in that final moment, you can think of it like a sort of bouncy ball when you whack it on the floor, it kind of compresses. And then, so think of that as a sphere, it's compressing in oof, all this insane gravity. And in that final sort of compression, that's where all the really heavy elements get fused. And so a lot of the elements needed to create life happen in that final supernova explosion. So it's a compression and then a expansion. And so it spits out all of this all of this dust and debris. And then that becomes the the clouds, like the supernova explosion becomes the, the clouds that create new stars and planets and eventually people, people and plants and, and the whole of the whole of life. But it's it was just interesting that when you really dive into that, there's a there's a, a, an element that I didn't understand before, which was not all big stars can confuse all of the elements. If they're not heavy enough, they won't get to the really heavy elements. So the, the ones needed to make the really heavy elements, when they mm, compress, they leave behind a black hole. And the threshold between creating the ingredients needed for life and creating a black hole is pretty much identical. Don't worry if you find it hard to grasp what Barney explained. For me, and probably for a lot of other people, the idea of space is something so abstract and humbling that I tend not to think about it too much. And then we haven't even covered time, or rather the lack of time in a black hole. In fact, the way I was trying to understand it, which is probably not scientifically correct, but it kind of worked for me. If you imagine like a metronome ticking. Imagine... Um, the closer you get to the black hole, space is being stretched so far 
that in order for it to go like tick to the left, it's almost like it's got such a, a vast distance. It, there's a point where space is stretched infinitely. And so it never arrives from the tick to the top. Like a second is elongated forever. That was a way I was trying to imagine how this relationship of, um, of time as space is stretched, so is time. And so you end up with, with the singularity, which where, you know, all these rules of space and time completely break down. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of another one of those bonkers science stories. This, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, Unité, top. And we have engine start. And liftoff. Décollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. This was the launch of the James Webb telescope last Christmas. As a successor to the Hubble telescope, it will be able to see even further into space and time. Since light from stars very far away can take millions of years to reach our eyes, these telescopes are always looking back in time as well. The light it captured from a very distant star might even be emitted millions of years ago. Who knows, maybe the star doesn't even exist anymore. I think the more, or at least our experience of doing these kinds of projects is the deeper you dive into a sort of understanding of the phenomenon, um, the more you discover a kind of a beauty or a level of detail. So it's like there's a beauty in observation, um, whether you're looking through a microscope or through, um, you know, Hubble Space Telescope, you know, depending on the lens you use, you're able to, to witness things that you could never imagine. If you've never seen photos of the Hubble Telescope, then I highly recommend you do so. They look like dreamy oil paintings made by someone on LSD and they are so addictively beautiful. No wonder Marshmallow Laser Feast took inspiration from them. When I ask the question, but is it art? People very often answer with yes, because it is more than just something pretty to look at, or yes, because it combines science and aesthetics. It has become pretty clear that distortions in space-time is rooted in science and then plays with it aesthetically. But it also wants to do something else. It wants to show you something that cannot be perceived by your own senses. Marshmallow Laser Feast used their art and new media to create this out-of-body experience. As an experience, it was supposed to be beautiful, full of mystery, quite violent at, at, at points, but also to give somebody the sensation of almost floating in the void. That was the main purpose of the mirrors. You know, can you, without a virtual reality headset, can you create a sense of presence or otherworldliness that puts you in a place where there is no floor plane, where you're sort of suspended in dust clouds, like in the void of space. In a way, you feel completely immersed in the work through the setting and the media that are used. In Shifting Proximities, the exhibition that we're discussing, this idea of immersion is present in basically all of the artworks. From enormous screens to reactive sensors, the visitor becomes almost part of the work. And immersion can be quite a powerful tool. Virtual reality is 
by far the most immersive um, technology when compared to like projections and mirrors. You can create some amazing effects, but I think um, the results we've had in virtual reality, especially with some of the new projects we're doing, are a whole other, other level of disembodiment. One of the main reasons is that you're not in, a, in an installation or in a cinema, you know, you're in your body, you can look at your hand and you're, you're in your body. In virtual reality, you can disembody someone and that's massively powerful. But why do we feel more immersed in some media than in others? There's a, a, like a tipping point. You know, can you trick the brain into believing that it's somewhere that it isn't? Um, so you could argue that, you know, if you, you're watching Interstellar on your mobile phone on a train versus watching it on the IMAX, the level of immersion, the content is the same, but your level of immersion is completely different. And there's probably a point in a, in a film where because cinemas are so ni nicely crafted, the lighting comes down, the sound that you kind of forget that you're in a body in a seat and you lose yourself in the film. And um, so I think it's no different for virtual reality. It's just that you're not looking at a screen, you're, you're in the film, you're stepping through the doorway or climbing through the window into a world where you have um, agency. In media theory, some scholars have written about the idea of medium-specific qualities. It's a pretty controversial topic within the field because it's extremely hard to distinguish which qualities make a medium a specific medium. But nevertheless, we can say that some media create a more immersive experience than others. And artists have been exploring the immersive qualities of media for centuries. When Leonardo da Vinci is exploring photorealism through paint, he's trying to create the illusion of something 3D on a 2D surface and affecting that art through you know, the, to the best of his ability at the time. But, but we're like, we're using like LIDAR scanners and photogrammetry to actually capture the three dimensions of the real world and then be able to translate that into, into a virtual world. We're using um, CT scanners and fMRI scanners to see inside the human body to reveal inner structures. So I think um, in a way, our process of observing um, through these different technologies and, and capturing like the, the, the compelling thing about what we're trying to do, I think is giving people a sense of presence so they really feel like they've walked inside the body and really explored um, these sort of hidden dimensions of reality. So for us, I think it's as the technology improves, the power of the experiences we're creating um, also improves. Another controversy within the field of media studies is the paradox of immediacy and hypermediacy. And I won't dive into it too deep, so bear with me, but it's very relevant to this idea of immersion and new media art. For VR and many other immersive media, the goal is to erase the medium so that it feels like you're not using any medium at all. Like Barney said, you forget you're sitting in a cinema and are completely part of the film. This is immediacy. But when you're using VR and you're adding digital images and interactive elements, you're emphasizing the use of media, since those things cannot exist without you using any media. And this is hypermediacy. And in VR or in distortions in space-time, these two are combined. There's no way in which we can actually see and hear the creation of a black hole but it sure feels like we're right in the middle of it. 
the, the limits of immersion are, you know, the limits of our senses that we're just tricking. You know, there's nothing you can do that is really beyond the limits of human perception. We're just um, using data that peers into those worlds. You know, you're still just limited by, by, by your senses. When you visit a museum, often you're doing it with someone else. Art, and specifically visiting art museums, is often something that is experienced together. Distortions in Spacetime is a really good example of that, since you share the room and the experience together with a very small group of people. But Marshmallow Laser Feast is focusing more and more on VR. And when you have a VR set on, you're isolating yourself in the digital world, and you're experiencing the art alone. Or at least that is what I thought. Shared experiences in virtual reality have been something that, you know, a few years ago were almost impossible. And now the technology is moving on and, you know, you've got full body tracking systems. So um, whereas before you'd say, oh, if you go to a, a, a light installation, you can be there with your whole family and you can, you know, it's a, it's a kind of shared social experience. And, and now in VR, the stuff that we're making is all about doing it with friends and, and family, not always, but but often. And, and that's like a really powerful, you know, it's like I want to go for a, a walk in the woods with my dog and my friends. Um, but the project we're working on at the moment about the human body is, is saying, oh, well, actually, instead of going for a walk in the woods, what if you took a sort of hike with some friends and walked through the ecosystem of the human body scaled up to the size of a forest. So on top of it being one of the most immersive media, according to Barney, now it can also be experienced together. And this is only what's possible with the technology of today. I wonder, with the innovations both in terms of VR as well as space technology and imagery, shouldn't distortions in space-time be revisited? We now even know what a black hole actually looks like, and spoiler alert, it's a little less spectacular than the artwork. I, I think it's fair to say that nearly every project we're doing is like an ongoing area of investigation and sort of driven by curiosity and and the process of research. So I could probably revisit that project every year for the rest of my life and do something different and, and discover something unique and beautiful. Um, I think at the moment our attention is fully on our relationship to nature. You know, you see a tree as something that's not you because it's clearly outside your body, but but then you live in relationship to to a tree. It's out breath going into your branching lungs and your out breath feeding a, a tree. And there's so many narratives like that that sort of blur this idea of boundary. I kind of feel like there's a, a shift that can happen where you start to change this idea of like the external world being something separate to it being uh, that you're completely entangled in it and inseparable. And so the health of what's outside is integral to the health of, of what's inside. And so I feel like we've got an opportunity to um, offer experiences and insights into that realization that. Um, have got nothing to do with deep space. <laughs> so that deep space is on hold for now. And I think we're, although we get excited by it, I think we're, we're really focusing our energy on endangered ecosystems and our relationships to nature. And that's a beautiful bridge to the next episode. 
where we will analyze the communication network of trees and how we can learn from them. We then start delving into protest art and whether or not art can actually ignite change. In the meantime, come and visit us. We're a new media art museum in the Netherlands, seeking, showing and questioning what's next. See you there?